Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the molecular mechanisms of cancer with Dr. Daryl Klein. Dr. Klein is an assistant professor of pharmacology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Daryl, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is exactly that you do. Yeah, I mean, I think my path to become a a medical researcher uh, involves my personal backstory and my love of competition. In some ways, I feel like I've been destined to study kinases and cancer and their mechanisms and and with the hope of developing useful cancer therapeutics. Uh, My uh, career trajectory, if you will, as a medical scientist began uh, long before my formal training. I grew up in New Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia. And at a young age, my my sister was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, Kimberly, my sister, was diagnosed with CML or chronic myeloid leukemia. It's a blood cancer that's rare in children. Um, At that time, over 40 years ago now, uh, Peter Noel at the University of Pennsylvania in in Philadelphia was studying the driving mutations that lead to CML. And he discovered a, a chromosome alteration that he dubbed the Philadelphia chromosome in CML patients like my sister. And and the results of that change is that a new protein is made, a a fusion of a tyrosine kinase signaling protein that's that's stuck in the on position. And that instructs cells to to divide and grow and and thus cancer. And that protein became a target for drug discovery. And And it really heralded the era of precision medicine that is specifically targeting a single, you know, bad protein with a drug. And that, and that was really exciting. And in 2001, there was this huge success with the Matinib or, or Gleevec. And that became the first drug that was developed to target a specific kinase to treat a disease. And in this case, CML. And, and CML patients treated with this drug can li- live long lives with controlled disease. Unfortunately for you know Kimberly, my sister at that time, it was, it was just the beginning of understanding this disease and there were no therapeutics, and that meant you know little could be done. And and this powerlessness drives me to find ways to spare other families similar devastation, and to better understand cancer. Um, you know, I really have spent a large part of my career investigating the molecular basis for for oncogenic signaling. And you know, on that path, I attended the University of Pennsylvania for my undergrad and my PhD and my medical degree. And I did clinical rotations at the Children's Hospital of of Philadelphia, CHOP. So I was walking the same halls as as Peter Noel and my parents and my sister years before. I joined the uh, MSTP or Medical Scientist Training Program. And this was funded by the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, uh, to to train a a group of physicians also to be researchers. And And the goal of that program is basically to link basic science findings to the clinic, the the bench to the bedside, and to bring lab progress into useful therapeutics uh, as rapidly as possible. And I think the success of Gleevec was just the beginning of targeting kinases, these 
these tyrosine kinases and other kinases in cancer. And so when I was, when I was at Penn, I studied under uh, Professor Mark Lemon. He was working on those other kinases that lead to different cancers and, you know, to see how they might um, cause cancer and how we might leverage understanding their mechanisms to develop uh, new therapeutics. I, I also mentioned, you know, my, my desire for, um, you know, competition. Um, and so one thing I, I'm not sure that people really understand is how competitive uh, research can be. And I, you know, I grew up playing sports in college and I love competing in, in track and field and crew and football and, and baseball. And when I first joined Mark's lab at Penn and, and was first introduced to lab research, I realized there that scientific research is, is intensely competitive. And I think it makes Olympic sport seem safe uh, by comparison. And, and I love that. And I loved everything about that. And then, but the problem is essentially in, in science, you're competing with unknown competitors and, and an unknown number of, of teams and, and the rules of the game are undefined and, and you don't even know when the competition started. Um, so, and certainly your competitors have more money and resources than you do. So you're always the underdog. Um, and, and that excites me. And I, and I like that, uh, you know, an example, when we started the project, we'll, we'll chat more about, uh, in, a, in a little bit, we were certain that, that you know, half a dozen other groups in the world were already working on it, and, and we didn't know how far along they were. Um, and so all you know is what you don't know. And if you want to win, you have to work nonstop, like 24-7. Uh, I once spent 50 hours straight in the lab uh, when I was a grad student without sleeping. And, it, you know, that was exciting to me. And that's something you can't do in, in sport. Um, after the game, you, you go home. But science is a years-long competition uh, with no timeouts, and, and the intensity is, is off the charts. So uh, I think that, that frames kind of uh, why I became a, a, a medical researcher and, and, and why, why I love doing uh, the work that I do. So let's take a, a step back for a bit. I mean, that sounds really inspiring and, and interesting in terms of how this kind of came full circle, how you had this experience with your sister and then went on to to become a scientist that's hopefully making a difference in the lives of other patients like her. But um, for our audience, maybe you can take a step back and tell us exactly, like, what is a kinase and why are they important in cancer? Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I should also mention that while I trained as a, an MDP, MD, PhD physician scientist, I've actually chosen a, a path devoted entirely uh, to research. Um, so during training, when I you know, find myself engaging with patients and, and talking to them about the unfortunately limited treatment options, I, I found that difficult and frustrating. And, and all I wanted to do was rush back to the lab and, and, and find new potential therapeutic avenues. So I made a choice to devote myself um, entirely to lab work. Um, but at the same time, I'm still working with other physician scientists and clinicians to help bridge our, our discoveries uh, to the bedside. Um, kinases uh, are often drivers of, of cancers. And, and the one that I've been working on recently, ALK, uh, anaplastic lymphoma kinase, is, is a well-known cancer-related uh, protein. And much like the protein uh, involved in my sister's uh, CML, it's a 
tyrosine kinase. And basically tyrosine kinases instruct the cells to grow and divide. And if this is unregulated, that leads to cancer. Um, so ALK, uh, well, unlike the CML case, ALK is, um, is, a, is a receptor tyrosine kinase. So what that means is ALK is located in a different part of the cell than the CML kinase. Um, so if a, if a cell were an ocean, the CML kinase would be a submarine and ALK would be more like an aircraft carrier at the surface. And so this localization difference has therapeutic implications, as you might imagine. You can't target a submarine the same way you would target an, an aircraft carrier. So in the clinic, we use small molecule, uh, you know, missile-like drugs that can dive deep into the ocean to reach that CML kinase submarine. Whereas for ALK, we have an opportunity to use antibodies that can target it uh, at the cell surface. So more like a, you know, a B-52 bomber. Um, it's been known for years that ALK is a driver of neuroblastoma. Now, neuroblastoma is a cancer of the peripheral nervous system. It's one of the more common pediatric cancers. It accounts for more than 10% of uh, childhood cancer mortality. But clinically useful therapeutics have been uh, slow to develop. And I think you know, one of the key reasons for the slow development of treatments is likely the lack of a, a structural framework for the target, ALK. Simply put, we have, you know, no idea what it looked like or how it functioned. It was a, a complete mystery before our work. I mean, the fact that ALK is expressed on, on neuroblastoma cells, but is not present on healthy tissue, makes ALK a veritable oncogenic beacon. It's a, a perfect target for precision medicine. It's much like the novel fusion protein in CML. Uh, in each case, the, the protein um, specifically, if you're targeting the protein specifically, it should have little side effects outside of the cancer itself. And the hope is that if we can target this kinase, ALK and neuroblastoma, that we might have the same positive outcomes for neuroblastoma that we see for patients with CML. So, you know, one of the things that always fascinates me is how you find these things to begin with. I mean, how do we know that these kinases play a role in cancer? How, how does that, how do you figure that out? How do you know which kinases are submarines and which kinases are, are aircraft carriers? I mean, and, and how did you figure out that these were important anyways? How does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. That's certainly outside of my lab's uh, expertise. Um, a lot of that is done through genomic work and associating uh, certain genes with certain disease phenotypes. And so where my lab's expertise comes in uh, pretty much after the fact, once these associations are known, um, that's where we come in to help define biophysically and structurally exactly how these uh, kinases and oncogenes are acting. And hopefully, if we have a molecular picture of that, how we might design and develop therapeutics to, to stall that uh, and, and prevent disease. So when you say that it, it kind of all starts with understanding which genes are expressed and which genes aren't, um, 
I, I mean, it, it sounds like the progress that we make in terms of cancer medicine is really investigators building on other investigators, building on other investigators' work. So somebody, you know, maybe was sequencing some genes and found that some genes were overexpressed in some cancers versus not. And then other people kind of discovered that that gene was associated with a protein like a kinase. And then you look at that kinase and say, well, where is it and how can we target it? Is that kind of how that works? That's exactly right. Right. I mean, it's it's work of uh, a tremendous number of individuals with differing expertise. Uh, certainly the approach my lab takes is just uh, one cog in that machine, uh, one that's a bit further down and probably less in the discovery stage, but one one that is keenly important to understand the mechanism of how molecules work, which can then give us insight into how we might target these and develop therapeutics uh, around their function. And then the other question that that I often have is, okay, so, you know, you discover this kinase uh, and you discover that it's important in cancer. Why is it that some kinases are important in some cancers, but not in others? I mean, how do these kinases, why, why do you have these genes for these kinases to begin with? And why are they differentially expressed? Cancer often um, recapitulates the, the paradigms that are important in, during development. So all of these kinases are crucially important in the, in the stages of development and help patterning in complex tissues. Uh, after that, they, they often kind of aren't used so much uh, in adulthood. And it's only during cancer and the, the oncogenic process that a lot of these developmental pathways are reawakened. And they can be reawakened in different tissues and in different places, but they all lead to the same thing. Basically, once you turn, return a kinase on, um, you're turning on the, the growth um, instructions. And when that's not counterbalanced, that's how cancer develops. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute, but when we come back, let's learn more about the molecular mechanisms of cancer and how exactly we target uh, these differentially expressed kinases to actually make a difference for patients. Please stay tuned for more with my guest, Dr. Daryl Klein. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital. With an event focused on nutrition for cancer survivorship presented by the Smilo Cancer Care Center in Trumbull. April 14th, register at YaleCancerCenter.org or email canceranswers at yale.edu. The American Cancer Society estimates that nearly 150,000 people in the U.S. will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer this year alone. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable and men and women over the age of 45 should have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Patients with colorectal cancer have more hope than ever before thanks to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. 
Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Daryl Klein. We're learning more about the molecular mechanisms of cancer, and right before the break, Daryl was telling us about this profoundly inspiring story of his sister who was diagnosed with CML, which really started his journey on becoming a physician scientist and one who is particularly interested in these molecules called kinases, which... Um, really work to activate the growth of of cancer cells. And so, you know, Daryl, before the break, you were mentioning that your lab really, after we know that, you know, a kinase is involved in a particular cancer, is really involved in looking at its its structure and kind of how to target it. Is that right? Exactly. Um, my lab... It's a structural biology lab. So, you know, we're essentially photographers, but we take pictures of, of very, very tiny things, molecules and, and proteins. And so this requires specialized equipment, cameras, if you will, that use x-rays and electrons rather than light in the, in the visual spectrum that, that we're used to. Um, you know, many people know DNA. So let's start there. Uh, people have heard of, of DNA and Watson and Crick and, and, and their double helix. Uh, DNA is, is basically a cookbook with tens of thousands of recipes. And uh, they're mostly protein recipes. So I guess it's a, a keto or a, a paleo cookbook. Um, ALK is one of these recipes. And uh, the recipe in the DNA cookbook tells us the ingredients and the order to make ALK. Um, but one big problem with this DNA cookbook is it's not illustrated. So we have no idea what the final product will look like. Um, so, you know, my lab follows the recipe to take pictures of the final products to, to illustrate this, this DNA cookbook. So we take molecular photographs uh, of the protein um, and also the mutants that, that are found in cancer. And then these pictures give us a better understanding of, of how things are supposed to look like and, and how it changes in cancer. And then this can inform us about uh, approaches to designing uh, targeted therapeutics. So my lab just reported the structure of, of the protein ALK in nature. Um, that's the tyrosine kinase that's important in, in neuroblastoma. And this gave us a first look at this unique oncogene. And it's, you know, it's going to be Im impossible for me to relay the complexities here. Um, but if we stick to our analogy of the, the cell as an ocean, it's, it's not unreasonable to say that ALK did actually look a bit like an aircraft carrier. I mean, it had this uh, unusual elongated structure, and it probably lies parallel to the, to the surface. Um, so it's like an aircraft carrier uh, floating on the water or the surface of a cell. And, and furthermore, we can see how it actually gets activated. 
basically two of these aircraft carriers line up next to one another. And in that position, they're then capable to, sell, to send their, their growth signals, um, which ultimately end up being cancerous growth signals, uh, to the neuroblastoma cell. Uncontrolled ALK activation like this leads to cancer, and it, and it, and it results from the, the tumor continuing to express this developmental ALK gene along with its stimulatory uh, ligand. Our research uh, reveals an approach to shutting off ALK and, and that it can be quite straightforward potentially. Uh, if we use our structure as a, as a blueprint, we can see clear areas where we would want to target this, this aircraft-like molecule. I mean, there's certain vulnerabilities that are revealed in the structure that we can strategically target and, and you know, sink this aircraft carrier. And so my lab now is designing potent antibodies that specifically target these regions in ALK. And, you know, there's, there's small molecules currently out there in use for neuroblastoma, as well as uh, many other different cancers that are driven or or partially dependent on, on kinases. And compared to small molecule therapeutics, antibodies, I think, can offer a, a great benefit. The small molecule drugs that are now currently in use, like prozotinib and, and lorlatinib, they target the intracellular, the actual kinase domain of the protein ALK. And one problem with these types of inhibitors is that you can't keep fooling the cancer for very long. They, the cancer figures out this trick quite fast that you're trying to inhibit it in this, in this domain. And, they, and, and the cancer makes changes that diminish the drug's impact. Whereas I think the antibody approach is, is, is a more brute force approach. And it's harder for the cancer to overcome this, this strategy of in, inhibition. I think that the therapeutic future will likely use a a combination of these two to completely uh, dismantle the, the ALK machinery. In some ways, you know, cancer can be viewed, viewed as having some of the similar challenges that we see for uh, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, and both use similar strategies to overcome disease. Both, you know, cancer and viruses mutate rapidly and they can evolve to different inhibitor approaches. And just as we use antibodies through uh, vaccination or, or directly injecting uh, recombinant antibodies and small molecules to overcome COVID, now we have a new blueprint for ALK uh, to help us overcome similar challenges uh, that are encountered in, in cancer and in particular neuroblastoma. And it sounds like when you know the, the structure of these aircraft carriers, um, that you can be very specific about, you know, targeting those particular molecules as opposed to normal cells. So you might have, you know, a bomber that only targets, you know, that flatbed where the aircraft lands on the aircraft carrier, or you can have some sort of a a mechanism whereby these two aircraft carriers can't line up together um, that really wouldn't apply in any other situation. So you can try to get more precise or more targeted therapies. Is that right? That's exactly right. Um, and remember that I said that, you know, since ALK is expressed um, only on neuroblastoma cells, but not present on healthy tissue, it really makes targeting ALK 
the perfect for, you know, setup for precision medicine. And then a, a layer on top of that, which I think you were just referring to, is now that we know the detailed structure and, and blueprints of this, what, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to design antibodies that specifically block areas on the protein that are involved and important for its activation. That is precisely where the ligand binds to activate uh, the receptor. And getting uh, um, back to how it's activated, where we see the, the two molecules lining up side by side to each other, we, we're designing antibodies that can block that interface to prevent it from being activated. That is being activated independent of ligand, which could be caused by certain mutations, which is further uh, research that we're doing now, or, or with the ligand. So we're using all this information to specifically design antibodies that are tailored to this molecule and the, and the type of mutations or mechanisms that activate it specifically in, in neuroblastoma. And so as you design these antibodies and these treatments, you're doing that in the lab. How, how does it actually get into patients? How does it affect people like your sister? Um, because that's where the story really started. And how long does that whole process take? You're right. That's a, that certainly is, is a long process. And, you know, cancer research is, is so matured and specialized now that it really requires, you know, effort to put these discoveries into usable formats and for others to build upon in, in meaningful ways. Um, and just as the NIH created that MSTP program to link basic science and patient care, now I think we need similar links between basic science researchers. I mean, the, you know, RNA biologist and chromosome researcher and, and, and the biophysicist like me trying to link up with the model organism biologist to test a, a lot of these in preclinical uh, setups. We all speak a different scientific dialect and we have different perspectives. So, you know, how do we work together? And, and one answer to that is, is, you know, being part of the Yale Cancer Biology biology institute that I'm a part of, you know, we, we really bring together disparate researchers among those interested in cancer. And so, you know, now I have, and, and being a physician scientist, so, you know, now there's a, a cohort of people and colleagues that I can work with that can bring our developing antibodies that we have into preclinical testing quite rapidly uh, to see if they do um, show good activity in vivo. And then that hopefully can be rapidly leveraged into reaching the, the patients that desperately need these um, treatments. Yeah, it, it sounds very much like you had mentioned earlier, but this is kind of a microcosm for the macrocosm of how science works, um, that, that your lab puts together people who all kind of come at the problem of, of ALK from a slightly different vantage point. But the work in your lab um, kind of builds on the work of other people's labs. And so maybe in, in the last uh, few minutes that we have, you could tell us kind of a little bit about how that works in, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, it sounds like one of the things that we've realized with the pandemic is that the world is shrinking. And hopefully the scientific discovery from one lab to another kind of bounces around fairly easily. How does that collaboration work? 
I think it is it is certainly a challenge, and I think you know getting getting researchers to to talk to each other and work together is an important part of that. And 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 like you said, I think you know during the pandemic and and having people communicate in different ways, like we are now through Zoom and, and other things, maybe the world is shrinking a bit. And I think that's that's a good thing for science and that's a good thing for research because we of course all of us working independently and and making advances we don't want them to go unnoticed by the people next in that chain that you were talking about that's necessary to make the leap to bring these discoveries to to their therapeutic potential Dr. Daryl Klein is an assistant professor of pharmacology at the Yale School of Medicine if you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.